One year ago, I gave you people a promise in this room. One year ago, I promised you people that if the phenomena which became known as Toronto, or call it what you will, if it resulted in revival, if revival came to Great Britain or anywhere else within one year, as a result of the Toronto thing, that I would leave the ministry, totally resign from the ministry, and even be willing to leave Great Britain. Well, I still have a job. <laughs> Remember who was here last year? Remember I said that? It's on the tape, yeah. This afternoon I looked at a copy of uh, Charisma magazine. Charisma. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight a bit. Charisma. As in charismata. And it said some ridiculous things. It said five years ago Paul Cain predicted that the whole stadium of people meeting at Christian meetings praising the Lord. And he said, promise keepers are the fulfillment of his prophecy. I remember when the charismatic renewal was in its heyday in 1978 at Giant Stadium in New Jersey, near New York City. And there was 80,000, 90,000 people in a stadium. The fishnet meetings in the States. Thousands, tens of thousands meeting in stadiums in the 1980s. If you wanted to be technical, going back to the Los Angeles Coliseum in the early 50s, Billy Graham was having crusades in stadiums predicting that people are going to have Christian meetings in stadiums in the United States is like predicting it's going to snow in Siberia. <laughs> Nonetheless, that's what they say fulfilled the prophecy. In fact, we have a list a mile and a half long of prophecies that the Kansas City prophets made that never came true. By the definition of the Word of God, Jeremiah 28, Deuteronomy 18, etc., Paul Cain is a false prophet, not a true one. Anybody can predict stadium meetings in America. They've always been this ridiculous. I said what would come after Toronto. What I told people in New Zealand and Australia is watch out for promise keepers. It is not of God. It is ecumenical. The biblical emphasis is not on nail bonding. You have one or two descriptive verses like Jonathan loved Saul or Saul or David more than any woman. One or two descriptive verses about some kind of nail bonding. But the prescriptive verses are male-female bonding. The Hebrew word devek. Husband clings to his wife in the Old Testament in Genesis, and it's reiterated in the New Testament. To achieve God's ideal, it's male-female bonding. Family being the basis of what God wants to do. Always was, right from the creation. Now, there are some people God has given the grace to be single, because God has given them a special calling on their lives. But being married... Would not be a help, but a hindrance. If certain people have that grace and that calling. But for most people, marriage is a normal state. The Bible emphasizes male-female bonding. It does not emphasize this kind of thing that promise keepers are pushing. It's more akin to Freemasonry, Roman Catholic monasticism, and God knows what else, but it bears very little resemblance to what the Word of God teaches about bonding. If anything is ecumenical, it's wrong. You cannot unite true belief with false belief. And if anything comes from the vineyard, it's bubbly wrong. 
The next article in Charisma Magazine by its editor, Stephen Strang, whatever his name is, was an attack on people he called the witch hunters. People like Hank Hanegraaff and so on. These witch hunters. There's an article, uh, an endorsement of a book by William de Artiga. Totally screwed up guy. You can make Swiss cheese out of him, but the book is uh, endorsed by Wynne Lewis of Elam. And he says, this book helps us deal with the trouble, the problems caused by Dave Hunt. <laughs> the problem was not caused by Dave Hunt. The problem was caused by the money preachers and the false prophets that Dave Hunt challenged. They're the problem, not the people who challenge them. So instead of the witches being the problem, it's the so-called witch hunters. When something is blasted onto a television screen, you don't have to go on a hunt for it. It's being brought right into your living room, and the world is seeing it. When somebody will deny the most basic truths of the Bible, saying that Satan got the victory on the cross, that the devil got the victory on the cross, that's what Kenneth Copeland teaches. When somebody will deny the most basic truths of the Christian faith and somebody says it's wrong, to go after the witch hunter instead of the heretic. Why? Because Charisma Magazine is the magazine of the charismatic movement. A movement which you've heard me say time and time again, after 30 years, has failed to deliver. After 30 years, it has failed to bring the revival it promised. Our societies are worse off now than they were 30 years ago. Much more crime, much more substance abuse, much more divorce, much more homosexuality, much more Eastern religious influence in our schools, much more. Life cannot be any way other. How can it be otherwise? The churches that have the renewal are worse off. The nine o'clock mass? The nine o'clock service in Sheffield? Did you read about this in this? These are the secular newspapers. The last morning newsletter, I told people, not because I had any great prophetic revelation, just because I can see the patterns of Scripture, just because of what the Bible says, that what comes after Toronto in reality. What, what do you have? The London Healing Mission, the big Toronto church in London, right? The minister gets arrested. The women removing their underwear to have communion wine poured on their genitals in church service. The, the nine o'clock service in Sheffield, the same thing. The, the, the internal anointing of women with oil. I don't know if that guy's a frustrated bartender, a frustrated obstetrician, but he shouldn't be in the ministry. I told people it would come to this. And that's what it's come to. Not because I'm a great prophet, just because I read the Bible. Unbiblical worship will lead to false worship. False worship will lead to idolatry. Idolatry will lead to immorality. After 30 years, this movement has not delivered. God is a God of honesty and integrity. And if any ministry or any publication is of him, it'll bear his seal of honesty and integrity. Jesus always spoke honestly and directly about things, for better or worse. The scriptures always speak honestly and directly about things, for better or worse. You see, the Pharisees had a problem. They built an empire on a dead religious system that could not deliver the goods. And when Jesus came along, 
He rocked the boat. He told the truth. You can't deliver. There's something wrong with you. You've gone away from the word of God. You're teaching us precepts of God, the inventions of men. You can't deliver. They had a vested interest in calling him a troublemaker. Today it's the same. They can't deliver. So they have a vested interest in going after people like David Hunt and Kang Karangraf and anybody else who tells the truth. That's why when Lewis called Clifford Hill a false prophet, they have a vested interest in it. They have a magazine that's been around. It's the magazine of this movement they can't deliver. They dare not admit that their movement is a failure because then why would they have a magazine? Why would they have a job? Let the guy go out and work as a carpenter on an honest living. Instead of writing articles that aren't biblical, telling people something has happened when it hasn't. After 30 years, charismata, the gifts of the Spirit. Avina Markenu, Matalotim, Havo Bifneha Akshav, Ravakesh Mincha, Ana Adonai, Vistachet, the Nine Shalano, the Tisaret Chalvarecha, the Shem Shahamashia, Kishua Adonim. The Tainano Abba, Lorak, the Shmoa, with our Western minds, we normally try to classify gifts of the Spirit on the basis of how they operate. Most books you'd read, in fact, everyone I've ever looked at, except the Bible, deals with the gifts of the Spirit from the point of view of how they operate. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in the early chapters, they talk about the charismatic gifts. And I'll begin reading in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts plural of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. So people will say, well, these are the gifts, and we'll break them into three categories. The ones that work by utterance, the ones that work by inspiration, and the ones that work by power. And they'll say things like the gift of healing, and the gift of faith, and the gift of miracles, and those are the power gifts. And tongues, well, that's the gift of utterance, etc. They'll say things like that. Now, for purposes of making an outline, I have no problem with that. If you're going to just try to explain the subject and you want to make an outline, there's no problem with that. But if you try to understand the gifts on that basis, you're already diverting from the way the Bible deals with it. Because then they'll go and they'll look at the ministry gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, 
some as evangelists, some as pastors, and some as teachers. So they'll say that's two different categories of gifts. The problem is, when you go to 1 Corinthians 12 again, what does it say? Let's look at verse 28. And God appointed in the church apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So now it looks like Ephesians. But then it says, then miracles, then gifts of healing and helps and administrations and various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All don't have miracles. So it would seem then, wait a minute. Paul, writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is confusing two different kinds of gifts. No, he's not. We're the ones who confuse it. We've begun to draw distinctions that the Word of God does not. Not only that, when you go to Romans, it's different. Romans chapter 12. Verse 6, and since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of the faith. If service, in his teaching. He who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. So philanthropy is introduced as a gift. Then it begins talking about the gift of mercy. And we read about things like gift of helps. It introduces other gifts here in Romans 12, not found in either Ephesians or Corinthians. We begin making distinctions the Bible does not. The Bible classifies gifts of the Spirit in two other ways. Now, I'm not against the way people do it. If you're just doing it as a practical way, to make an outline. But if your theology of the gifts of the Spirit is based on an outline, you're making a mistake. The Bible classifies gifts in two other ways. The first is not how they operate, but what their aim is. The Bible classifies or categorizes spiritual gifts, not so much or not primarily on the basis of how they operate, but what their aim is. Secondly, we can understand different categories of gifts by looking at the different Greek words used to explain the different kinds. We just translated gifts with the original Greek text of When you look at the different words used for different kinds of gifts in different contexts, a whole lot becomes clear up. We'll come to that. But first of all, let's look at the purpose of the gifts. What is the purpose? Let's look first of all 
at Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. And these signs will accompany or will follow those who believe in my name. They'll cast out demons and speak with new tongues, etc. They'll lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. Now there are many verses we could cite. The first purpose and the main purpose of the gifts is to equip the church to replay the ministry of Jesus. To equip the church to replay to the extent possible the ministry of Jesus. Greater work than me shall you do. What does that mean? It means a lot of things. One thing it means is quantity. Jesus as far as we can be sure, had no more than 500 or so committed followers. There have been far more successful evangelists in the history of the church than Jesus. Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, Billy Graham, Louis Palou, D.L. Moody. Numerically, all of them did greater work than Jesus. Numerically. Another aspect is, because we have a fallen nature and we're so wicked, Amazing how God can use us. I can see how God can use Jesus, which He has no sin. What about us? The gifts are designed to equip us to carry out the ministry of Jesus, not His death and atonement, but the breaking in of His kingdom, which will climax not before His return, as the triumphalists say but with his return. The second purpose related to this is unity. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 14 to 31. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, commencing in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were hearing... Where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable on these we bestow more abundant honor and our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness. Whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked that there should be no division in the body 
but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed the equivalent of the gifts. The second purpose of gifts, related to the first, is to build unity. Is to build unity. You cannot have a true unity of the Spirit unless you have an operation of the gifts of the Spirit. What good is a blind eye? What good is a deaf ear? If you're walking around in this building, and this building is easy to get lost in, hold somebody, people have entered this building, they've never been heard from again. <laughs> <laughs> And the lights go out. You're looking for any sign of light. And you're listening. Is that Sidney's footsteps? Was it a spook? The members have to be coordinated under the head. Most of you know this kind of stuff. But those who hear. Those who hear. Those who have the word of wisdom. Smell. Sermon of spirit. How lovely on the mountain are the feet. Charge your feet with the shoes of the gospel of peace. Who are the feet? Angelus. The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is sound. The body will be sound also. But thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Or the eyes? Teachers. Unity. The gifts engender unity. Now they engender unity with a name, with a purpose. Carry out the work and ministry of Jesus. But unless the gifts are operating in a biblical manner, there will not be a genuine unity. The most you can be united in is coming to church. You can be united in prayer. You can be united in doctrine. You can be united in faith. But you really cannot be united in carrying out the work of Jesus. You can't be united in it. Everybody does the same thing. You don't have a united body. I know churches that try to make everybody an evangelist. And they said, the pastor is going to do all the teaching and everybody else will witness and you bring the unsaved in. Now, every Christian is a witness. We are all witnesses. We are all called to witness. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Not everybody can stand up on a step ladder in Speaker's Corner in London or in front of a large auditorium of people and preach the gospel and see a large number of people get saved. Not everybody can do that. But there's nobody who cannot witness one-on-one. There's nobody 
who cannot give out tracts. There's nobody who cannot share their testimony. We're all witnesses. With our lives, but also with our words. The unity of the Spirit requires unity in faith, unity in doctrine, but it also requires being united in the work. Now, God's idea of being united in the work is, again, not like ours. Man's idea of us being united and being one is Chairman Mao. One billion Chinese people, all dressed alike with a little Mao cap and a little blue suits, right? And the little red books. And they all say the same, they, choke, sorry, they chant the party line. And that. That's man's idea of unity. God's idea of unity is different. God's idea of unity is a unity in diversity. Where we have the same faith, the same baptism, the same goal, the same purpose. But if you're building a building, you need carpenters, you need stonemasons, you need electricians, you need plumbers, you need draftsmen, you need architects, you need engineers, you need landscapers, you need lots. What good is trying to build a building like this if everybody was a plumber? Well, at least we'd get the hot water to work, wouldn't we? <laughs> Bad example. Unity of the Spirit begins by having the same Spirit, the same faith, the same aim, but its practical outworking would be different members working in harmony. Repeatedly, the Scripture does this. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Spirit according to His own will. The word here for gifts is the Greek word merismos, not usually used for gifts, only used one place in the Bible, and not used much outside of the Bible in the Greek in Greek literature. Merismos means a division or an apportionment or a sharing out. Unity. When we were a few weeks ago in Israel on the foot of Mount Hermon and we looked at the ascension mount above us from Banyas from Caesarea Felipe, we read from Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And then it says, it's like the precious oil coming down off of Aaron's head onto his beard. And it's like the snow melting on Mount Hermon coming down. Aaron, the high priest in Hebrews, 
Some of you know this. Most of you know this. It's a type of Jesus. Real anointing only comes from him. Nobody's anointed except Jesus. The oil is poured on the head and it goes off the head onto the rest of the members. To really be anointed, you have to be attached to the body and under the head. He is the anointed one. Hamashiach. Look at Psalm 133. Some of you are looking at me like you don't know what I mean, so we'll look at it. How good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil, the anointing, shemen, upon the head, coming down upon Aaron's beard, coming down upon the edge of his robes. Now notice this. The oil goes onto the head and off the beard and then onto the robes. It covers the entire body but never touches the flesh. It never touches the flesh. The gift and calling of God go forth without repentance. It's talking about Israel but it expresses a general principle. How can corrupt leaders Perform miracles in the name of Jesus? How can they be anointed? Look at Psalm, look at uh, Matthew 7. Twenty-two. Many will say, Lord, Lord, we're not prophesy in your name. Cast out demons in your name. Perform miracles. And he says, get lost. I never knew you. You practice lawlessness. It never touches the flesh. It's nothing to do with us. It has to do with the head and the body. But not the flesh. Touch not my anointed. Who's the anointed? The anointed is the head. It's Jesus. As we always point out, King David would not kill King Saul in the cave of Angedi. He wouldn't touch him. The Old Testament kings of Israel were types of Jesus, types of the anointed. David would not touch Saul, but that never stopped David and the prophet Samuel from telling the truth about Saul. He was a backslider. He was good. It shouldn't stop us from telling the truth either. I don't care how many gifts. Oil was off the head, over the body, with nothing to do with touching the flesh. Ex opere operato. Now, let's look. The third purpose. We already looked at Hebrews 2, 5. Merismos. Hebrews 2, 4, 2, 5. Bearing witness. John chapter 5. Believe because of the works I do. The gifts bear witness. What do they bear witness to? What happens on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is outpoured and tongues begin? What does Peter say? 
Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured forth this which you both see and hear. What you see and hear bears witness to the fact that Jesus has been exalted. That he died for our sins, that he was resurrected and has been exalted. They bear witness to the truth of his claim to be the way of salvation. So we have three purposes. The first purpose is to empower the church to carry out the ministry Jesus has given it. Which just is a partial perpetuation of his own ministry. Secondly, to build a unity in the body to further equip it to do the first thing. And thirdly, to bear witness to the unsaved that the gospel is true, that Jesus is Lord, that he's exalted, and that those who preach him in spirit and truth are indeed his messengers. Remember the story in the book of Genesis when Abraham sends his servant to get a bride for his son, doesn't he? We read this in the book of Genesis 24. It's a picture of the triunity of the Godhead. The father sends his servant to get a bride for his son. God the Father sends the Holy Spirit to get a bride for the son from among his own people. At first, they're skeptical. But what happened? Verse 30, and it came about that when he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, this is what the man said to me, he went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels and the spring. And on the camels were all of these gifts. In verse 35, the Lord has greatly blessed my master, so that he's become rich, and given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and servants. The gifts prove that the servant was sent by the father to get a bride for the son. The gifts proved, or were a proof, not the only proof, but a proof. But it also says, not only the gifts, it says the word. It says, this is the word, and these are the gifts. Verse 30. It's always like that, the word and the gifts. The gifts are never the key unless they follow the word. First he gives the word, then the gifts. Don't let anyone ever tell you that gifts of the Spirit are the key to seeing revival. They are not the key. They have their role, they have their function, but they prove nothing. They saw Jesus do the miracles, they saw Jesus raise the dead, make the blind see and the lame walk and a week later they say crucify In the Talmudic literature, in the Havodat Serah, 
It says that Jesus did miracles with no other rabbi. I was in Jerusalem about a week ago, and I was talking to an ultra-Orthodox rabbi, Rabbi Goldstein, up on Mount Zion. He's from New York. We've been in about 30 years. He's at Peyote. He sells the whole thing. He talked to him. He avodat zerah. He did miracles with no other rabbi. His disciples did miracles in his name, including healing the sick and raising the dead. The rabbis even believed it. Didn't make them believe in it. The gifts alone are never going to convince people to believe. They have their role. But they must always be accompanied by the word. These signs Follow. Once people try to lift up the gifts above the word, they're in trouble. John the Baptist did no miracles, yet many, many believed. The word of God is where the power is. His word and his spirit. The gifts have their place, but not in place of the word. We've talked about it many times, and we won't do it now, but on Palm Sunday, they wanted Jesus to put on a show. He refused. Instead, he cleaned the money changes out of the temple. Religious leaders who were profiteering on the blood of the Lamb. Same thing today. Judgment begins in the house of God. He's more interested in repentance, not miracles. But then in Matthew 21, it says, after the people saw what Jesus did in cleaning the money changers out of the temple, it says, then they brought the lame and blind and sick to him and he healed them. Then. Jesus never, ever, ever allowed signs, wonders, miracles, or gifts to be amplified over the preaching of his message which began with repentance. Never. Those are the three purposes of the gifts. To equip the church to replay the ministry of Jesus to the extent possible and to carry out the work he's mandated for us to do. Secondly, to engender unity of the members in order for that to take place. And thirdly, to engender faith in the eyes of the unsaved when accompanied by the preaching of the word beginning with the message of repentance. Now let's go back to our problem. How do we categorize these gifts? Once again, in Western thought, people have tried to categorize them on the basis of how they operate. In Scripture, they're categorized on the basis of what their aim is, and also on the basis of the different words used in the Greek language. Let's begin looking at how the words show us how to understand the gifts. We looked at one word already, Marismos, but we'll leave that. You have a lot more general term called Daron, Daron. In Matthew 2.11, they brought gifts to Jesus. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, we see the same word, Daron. For by grace you've been saved through faith, 
and not of yourself, is the Daron of God. It's a general term. Another general term is Doma. Doma. Doma only occurs four times in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 7, verse 11. If you then, being evil, know how to give good doma to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In verse 9 it says, What man is there among you when his son shall ask him for a loaf, he give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Some people have tried to justify saying, we know this phenomenon we had with Toronto is of God because we asked the Father. And if we ask him for a fish, he won't give us a and that becomes their proof. That's how it Well, let's look at this carefully. First of all, let's look at it midrashically. I'll make you fishes of men, but a serpent is a deceiver. So if you apply it evangelistically, it's not talking about what they say. But let's do that. Secondly, it's a test. If you ask for a fish and you get a serpent, you can be sure the serpent didn't come from the Father. If you ask for a fish and you get a serpent, if you're holding a snake in your hand, it doesn't look like a mackerel, does it? Nonetheless, let's move on. These people do is take a verse out of the context. It says, Knock, and it shall be opened to you. What we're told to keep knocking. We're told to ask according to his will. We're told in James, if you ask with right focus. Nonetheless, talk about this term of knowledge. Let's press on. Ephesians 4 8 uses the same word as Doma. Let's look at Ephesians 4 8. When he ascended on high, he led captives, the host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. This quote from the Old Testament, from the Tanakh, from the Book of Psalms, Psalm 68, 18. Matanah. But now, we dealt with the general terms. Let's look at the two names to get the gifts. The first word to get, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. 
For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundant grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in the life of the one, Jesus Christ. It uses two different words here. One grace and the other gift. Acts chapter 2, verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues of the fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Acts eleven seventeen. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, referring back to Acts chapter 2, verse 3, after believing in the Lord. And then Ephesians 4, 7. But to each one of us, grace was given, once again, grace and gifts again, according to the measure of Christ. The gifts of the Spirit or the gift. The gift of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself. The gift in the sense of a present, a birthday present, a Christmas present, an anniversary present, that's the Holy Spirit Himself. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The gift the Dorea is our salvation. Salvation. The Holy Spirit Himself. Eternal life. That's the gift. Holy Spirit is the type of the That's the word presence. The gift of the Spirit, like miracles and tongues and prophecy, is another word entirely. That word is charisma. Charisma, meaning grace. Romans chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see you in order that I might impart to you some spiritual charisma. Romans 12, 6. And since we have charisma, charisma, charism, grace, we have the wrong idea. I have the gift of tongues. No, you have the grace to pray in tongues. I have the gift of miracles. No, you have the grace. I have the gift of prophecy. No, you have the grace. But not only that, we'll come back to it. You don't have the grace. The body does. The gift, the gift is to you. The gifts are to the body. The gifts may be in a man or in a woman, 
But they never see a man as a woman. They are through a man or through a woman through the body. Two wrong ideas. I have the gift of discernment of spirit. No, you have the grace to discern spirit. And not you. They've got the whole thing fundamentally wrong. The gift, the present, the birthday present, the Hanukkah present, the Bar present, or whatever present you give someone. That's salvation. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit himself. The pledge, the earnest of our salvation. That's the gift. Yes, you have the gift. Three gifts of the Holy Spirit, you have them. You have the present. God gave you a present. That's right. Now, whatever other charismatic gift you have, oh, the grace. And it's not through you. It is through you, through the I have the gift of prophecy. Oh, the body has. I simply have the grace to be God's people. I have the gift of the sermon of spirit. No, the body of Christ is the gift of the Well, I might use them as an evangelist. Do you think because people are getting saved for the 
is a man who boasts falsely of his gifts, or is a man who boasts of his gifts falsely. That's what Paul's warning about. That's what Proverbs is warning about. I have this gift. God showed me this. I know this. Oh, come on, you start to They got the whole thing wrong. Well, that's the first way we understand it. By the different Greek words. Particularly, dorea, present. That's to you personally. But charisma is grace. That's to the body. Then, there's another one. Name. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 4 and 5. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. Do you see how it puts Gifts and ministry next to each other. See that? That's one place it does it. It puts your ministry and gifts next to each other. In a different way, in a different context, even with a different subject, the same principle is reiterated in Romans 11, which is talking about God's purposes for Israel and the Jews, but the general principle still illustrates it. Romans 11:29. For the gifts and calling of God are saying God is finished with the Jews and his calling is revoking both his word. Similarly, if you put back the gift of the Spirit, the church is also broken. Once again, you have gifts and ministry, and then gifts and calling. Let's look at First Timothy. I'm sorry, Second Timothy, chapter one, verse six. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you, to the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be disgraced to the testimony of our Lord, or of thee his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Once again, it puts gifts and calling together. In Romans, in First Timothy, in Corinthians, there's a relationship between your gifts and your calling. Now look at Second Timothy. He saved us and called us. Salvation is total. You 
were not only saved to go to heaven, you were saved to do something in the meantime that's going to help other people to get there. And it says, from all eternity. Now, I'm not a Calvinist, but I do accept that the Bible says those whom he predestined, those whom he foreknew. But it says more than that. Even our calling was predestined. God has something for you to do before you were born again, something for you to do before you were born, something for you to do before he created the universe. And it links this calling with gifts. Whatever gifts you have, God has given them to you to equip you to do the ministry he's called you to. Whatever calling God has given you will in part determine what gifts you do. Understand? You have a calling. You have a ministry. Every Christian is a minister. What charismatic gifts God has given you will bear some relationship to the calling He's given you? What is your ministry? If you know what your ministry is, that is one way you will begin to discover what your gifts are. For instance, let's take a pastor. The Hebrew word pastor or a, same word for shepherd. A pastor is called to know well the condition of your flock. If somebody does not have a pastoral sensitivity, if he's not standing in front of his congregation, and without knowing anything, he cannot stand souls in his congregation who are hurting or struggling. He's not a pastor. So hence, it is not at all infrequent that a pastor has that calling if God has called him to be a pastor. He will very frequently have the gift of the word of knowledge. Brother, the Lord has shown me that you have the same problem. The charismatic gift somehow helps equip him for his calling. An evangelist, say a missionary. To go to areas of the world where there are witch doctors. I'm going to Africa in December. Supposed to be feminism, witch doctors. They're doing supernatural things by demonic power. India, common priests do supernatural things by demonic power. Pharaoh's magicians did supernatural things by demonic power. Only Moses is a So the missionary who has the calling to evangelize these people in India or in the Hindu land of Africa, you'll be signs and wonders perhaps more powerful than the Calvinist or the witch doctor to understand. He needs the gift of miracles 
carry out his calling. Somebody who is a prophet will automatically have two gifts. He will have the gift of prophecy, and he will have the gift of the word of wisdom, or he wouldn't be a prophet. The thing you need to look at in pursuing or trying to identify your gift, the first thing you look at is not do I have this gift or that, that's the Western thinking. We're looking at function, God's looking at aim, we understand. What has God called me to do? What's my ministry? Is God calling me to pastor ministry? Is God calling me to a mission field? Is God calling me to the ministry of teaching? What's my ministry? That's the thing you have to discover. Once you discover that, for God guides, God provides. Where God guides, God provides. Then it becomes relatively simple. Number one other thing. Because God's going to give you the things you need to be equipped in your circumstances to do what He's calling you to do. Now, there is some legitimacy in the argument in saying that because the New Testament had not been written yet, the apostles needed certain gifts. The problem happened. When they say they ended with the apostles, now we have the New Testament. All scriptures inspired. The Old Testament was the Bible of the early church. There's nothing in the New Testament that's not in the Old. The apostles knew how to explain it. We'll come to that in our final session. Although, I can accept there is some truth in it. Once you take a truth too far, Suppose somebody's called to be a medical mission. Well, you go to certain places in the world. I have a friend who's a medical missionary. He's performed brain surgery. I would expect, and you should expect, you will see more medical miracles, gifts of healing, and all kinds of services. When Jesus healed people, every case that we have a record of him healing somebody, it was in a situation that there was no medical cure at that time. Did you notice that? Something that was adequate, like the, the, the Good Samaritan, Jesus said you should just take care of him and use the common sense. Medical case. Common sense. Somebody who's going to be in that kind of situation is going to expect to see the gift of me. Okay. 
very, very frequent. Real evangelism will have the weakness of prayer and spirit. Evangelism is a form of spiritual warfare. Remember, David had a good misfortune. Even in his greatness, circumcision was holding on with the type of salvation. You know what you're up against spiritually when you're looking. But Angelus, we know it. Very frequently, the sermon of spirit is found in Angelus. The thing to look at and not to, to, the thing to aim at is not do I have the gift of healing or the gift of tongues or the gift of miracles. The thing to look at is what is Jesus calling me to do with my life? Once I know that, the rest becomes almost self-evident. You understand? The Bible categorizes gifts in terms of aim, not function. It's we who are looking at function. We're looking at it with the rest of the mindset. The gifts of the Spirit are associated with but not proof of being spiritual. They are associated with, but they are not proof of being spiritual. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of holiness. If there's carnality in someone's life, they are not living a spirit-filled life. I don't care how many gifts they do. Remember, the anointing oil does not touch the flesh. It's holiness. It's wind and fire. Power and holiness. When you see a lack of power in someone's ministry, it's the flesh of the Holy Spirit. When you see a lack of holiness in someone's life, I grieve the Holy Spirit many times. However, we can associate spirit baptism with gifts. Once again, Romans 1.11. For I long to see you in order that I might impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Also, 2 Timothy 1.6, as we've already read. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. We can associate it with spirit baptism, but it is not the truth of a spirit-filled life. Remember, Gifts of the Spirit existed in the Old Testament, didn't they? 
Did the apostles exercise gifts of the Spirit before they were baptized in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Did they? Did the apostles? Did the apostles practice the gifts of the Spirit ever? Look at Matthew 10. Verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, give the healing, give the miracles, cleanse the lepers. Why? Jesus. The oil is poured out on him. They did it through their association with Jesus because the anointing on him was so powerful. But for us, it's no different. We operate in gifts of the Spirit and signs and wonders through our association with Jesus. We attach to his body and under his head because the anointing on him is so powerful. Forget about there's an anointing on you so powerful. That's wrong. There's an anointing on him that's so powerful. Even before being baptized in the Spirit, even before the day of Pentecost, the apostles through their association with Jesus. In his physical absence, he has a vicar. No, not that counterfeit vicar in Rome. The authentic vicar of Christ is the Holy Spirit. Understand? So in other words, what the apostles did in Matthew 10, through their direct association with Jesus, we now do, through the Holy Spirit, his wickedness. He communicates Christ to us. You should say the Pope's an Antichrist. You know this. Both of you know this. In the Greek term Antichrist, Antichrist means in face of Christ. The word vicar, in Latin, the Catholic, in face of Christ. If you were to translate the Pope's title in Latin, which is the Catholic Priesthood, which is Greek, it's Antichrist. Every time the Pope is on his trial, and he's going to propose, he says, I am the Antichrist. But it's the Holy Spirit who's the victim of Christ. How? Jesus was God. Jesus could have walked on the water because he was God. Jesus could have raised Lazarus from the dead because he was God. Jesus could have fed the 5,000 because he was God. Did Jesus do any miracles or healings or signs and wonders because he was God? Did he do those things because he was God? No, he could have done those things because he was God. Turn with me, please, to Philippians chapter 2. Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Jesus emptied himself of the privilege of his deity. He was still God, but he never used his divine power. Not even one time did he use his divine power, ever. The devil tried to tempt him to use his divine power, 
What Jesus did, he did the same way that Jesus did it today. By the Holy Spirit. If Jesus had to be filled with the Spirit and empowered by the Spirit to do the things God was calling him to do, how much more we? What went wrong is partly something called Chalcedon. It was a council in the early church. Chalcedon. You had two kinds of schools, of rival schools of thought in the early church. Antioch was one, and Alexandria was the other. They were fighting over Christology. Both of them were trying to refute heretics who were saying Jesus wasn't God. It is impossible, it is impossible to overstate the divinity of Christ. He's God. How can you overstate his divinity? Jesus is God. You can't overstate his divinity. But what you can do is understate his humanity. You understand? What you can do is understate his humanity. So because they were trying to refute heretics who were saying he wasn't God, these people at Chalcedon began saying, he walked on the water because he was God. He said the 5,000 because he was God. You understand? They combated one mistake with another. They combated one mistake with another. That was wrong. Jesus could have walked on the water because he was God. Now, this idea has permeated much of the church, and it underlies it's the most root, earliest rudiment of cessationism that the gifts ended with the apostles. Why? Christology is, is, is like the study of Jesus, and the Bible teaches a Trinitarian Christology, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. What these people wound up with is something called a binitarian Christology. The Father and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, well, they don't deny he exists, but when it out of the equation, you know what I'm saying? Jesus did these things because he was God, so they didn't have to think about the Holy Spirit so much. That was a mistake. Jesus didn't do those things because he was God. He could have, but he didn't. He did it by the Spirit. So early since Chalcedon, the Holy Spirit began to be suppressed by a wrong theology. They were trying to refute one error, so they introduced another. Does anybody not understand what I mean? Now, it's a shocking thing to say that God introduces error to correct error. But you know, in the last month's issue of Elam Magazine, the Elam Minister of Barry Elam said, Exactly that. He said God corrects error by introducing other errors. <laughs> he actually wrote, who read that article? He's actually using Hegelian dialectics, the idea of the thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. Same, same root as Marxism and higher criticism. Same root as Marxism and higher criticism. Hegelian theology. God introduces error to correct error. He said, because there's some people over the top about Israel, 